Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast brought to you in partnership with FootJoy. In this episode, Sam sits down with owner of Old Barnwell, Nick Schreiber. Now, for those of you who listened to the podcast in part one of the Tour Diaries where we talked about our trip to America, you will all know we were extremely fond of Old Barnwell. And it was amazing to be able to get to sit down and spend some time with Nick and chat him about the philosophies of the place and the membership and his story in golf, which led him to the decision to try and build a, a golf course and a club and a membership the way that he has. Nick enlisted the help of Brian Schneider and Blake Conant on the way, and we were releasing a pod with those guys at the beginning of next week. But, but this podcast specifically is about the mission behind Old Barnwell having the positive influence on the golf community. So sit back, grab a cup of coffee or a Kimmel and enjoy. Watch this. Uh, no, it's an absolute pleasure. And honestly, I can't thank you enough and, and, and Brian for, for teeing it all, it all up. I mean, what a magical time we had. Good. And I saw you got some, you get some interesting weather too. You get the full, the full gamut of experience yeah, yeah. in the, uh, and Augusta area. Yeah, it was like the apocalypse looking out when we first turned <laughs> up across the way and it was all quite yeah, bleak. It's quite dramatic actually, because it's a hell of a landscape. So when you've got the black clouds and everything, you're thinking crikey, um, but yeah, no, we had a great time. Really, really good. And yeah, I thought the, I guess that the, I mean, the course is unbelievable, which you know, but the ethos and like how friendly everyone was, was like, like smacked you in the mouth hard, like really nice people there, like really good. Everyone was just beaming. It was just such a, obviously the guys that you've got working for you there, just having a blast and, and have a really nice culture. It's yeah. Must be a well, nice feeling. That's great to hear. Um, you know, I feel like we've been very fortunate in terms of, you know, you can only hope uh, that your instincts are correct when you're hiring new people. And our team has done a really good job of bringing on people that understand what we're trying to accomplish that kind of goes yeah. beyond golf. Um, and so like welcoming is like a word that we use a lot. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, you felt that way because they work very hard to make sure that people do feel welcome uh, when they're on the property. And it's something that as we continue to grow, I think will be a challenge, but something that, uh, I think it's always top of mind for the team. But you only get one shot at it, don't you? And I, I mean, I, I absolutely adore the game of golf, and I love. I always think the most exciting thing about playing golf is when you visit a club for the first time. In particular, it's that sort of twenty minutes when you get out of the car and you're exploring. I think that's the best. And there's nothing worse than when you sort of tiptoeing around, not really sure where you should be going. And, <laughs> you know, so when you're, uh, when you're made to feel welcome, no, it's great. So what I'm hoping we can do is maybe just do, you know, chat a little bit. I'd really like to talk about your journey uh, in golf, mm -hmm. um, how you, how Barnwell came into being the ethos and the culture and what you're trying to build. And we'll touch on the course. And then I'm hopeful that we can get Brian and Blake on to talk about the construction and, what we do then is we release these podcasts called Course Diaries, which are sort of, mm -hmm. you know, capsules about golf courses, which I think is nice because a lot of people won't get to visit Barnwell and therefore getting to sort of like hear some of that. I think that's really intriguing and people will then think about the golf courses and stuff. So, you know, we do a lot on golf course architecture. So I think it'd be really neat. Um Tom also flew the drone at the end when we had a little bit of sun poking its head out. Nothing spectacular. <laughs> um, yeah. 
you get a six out of ten for the weather you organised. Um, well, what we best, might be so. able to do is is pull a few nuggets out from from the podcast and see if we can stitch that to some films or something like that. But you know, everything we'll share with you prior prior to release, as as I mentioned. No, no, that's you know, I just appreciate there's enough interest around what Brown and Blake have done that people want to come see it and film it and. Um, you know, and I forget if I said this, but I I probably watched your Rye video like 20 times before I went there this last no. summer. Um, and so, um, yeah, very familiar with, uh, I don't know if that's officially a course diary, but, um, you know, no, it's I've a film. seen it's quite a, a few of you. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you, you yeah. enjoyed the Rye film. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the production value is, is very good, but I, I will say that like when I first watched it, I wasn't watching it for the production value. I'm like, I need to know what I'm getting into here. Yeah. And to your point, it goes beyond the golf. You give a really good sense of, and our member, by the way, um, our member who's a member at Rye, a guy named. I met him. I met him yes, in the he's a fan. Wilcox. Oh, that's right. With his, he was with, uh, yeah, he told me. Um, so he is a very interesting guy. And he has shared that video. I know he has shared that video with other people in advance of them coming. Um, and yeah, but so I don't know, did, did, did you get any color on? So what was happening is we were about to go to Old Barnwell and we're sat having breakfast. And I think we just put a few bits, but and I, and I mentioned, oh yeah, Nick's, uh, you know, been in touch with Nick on email, et cetera. And this chap comes over and says, excuse me, you're talking about Nick Schreiber. I thought, oh, God, I'm going to be in trouble here. I've done some sort of like panicked. <laughs> and then we got chatting and he mentioned he knew David Normoyle um, mm-hmm. and then talked about Rye. And I think he was from, is it Buford? Something like that. Um, yes, he was um, in Buford, yeah. So we got we got chatting a little bit. And then Ryan Nodes from the Addington, he then got chatting mm-hmm. to him a little bit. And yeah, we made up, we're on our merry way. So, yeah. Small world. So Brian, Brian introduced me to him early on. He's one of our two fully, like we've got four, what I would say are like our Prince rivers founding members, folks that have really put a huge part, but he's one of two that has paid full freight because he's really passionate about what we're doing. But Brian Schneider introduced me to him. He's known Brian for a long time. So he used to work for the NSA and his wife, I think was even higher up in the NSA than he was. Um, but he was the guy who found the aerials that Peter Flory used for the Lido. He found aerials of Pinehurst number two that Court and Crenshaw used. And so the joke is that like, oh yeah, I'm sure you found these in the National Archives when nobody else could find them, but you also work for the NSA. So I'm sure that, I'm sure it was above board, however you did this. But he is like a, I mean, a golf sicko does not begin to Doesn't cut describe. No, because like we've got some of our members that are part of the committee that's changing a course in Atlanta called Druid Hills. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned this in passing and he proceeded to send like, a, like a whole host of images of historical images of this club to these other members that he didn't even know yet. He was, you know, now they're fast friends, of course, but anyway, he's just a fantastic guy, really interesting. And it doesn't surprise me that a former spy heard you talking uh, at breakfast and came over and, and decided to chat with you. Which so. made me feel even worse now that I know both the NSA. <laughs> so, so there we go. Both needs those people. And the thing is, you, I think, you know, bringing it back to old Barnwell, you know, Rye's a very potent club experience, isn't it? It's a, it's a magnificent golf course, but it's also a very potent experience. And I think yes. those are the ones that live longest in the memory. And I suppose whilst you haven't got the clubhouse infrastructure and everything else there just yet, you certainly get the ethos of what the club is is about and you get a feeling that you're playing a golf course. I've never played anything quite like it, actually. I think, you know, Tom, um, 
who was playing with us said, this is actually probably the closest I've seen a modern golf course come to executing old course values in so mm. much as it is extremely wide, but the targets are incredibly small. And I think all of those things make for a very, very, you know, it's a very strong, provocative golf course and club. And I think that's, that's cool. So um, I'm really curious, Nick, so, so your, what's your personal sort of journey in the game of golf? You, you've been around it from a young age, right? Correct. Um, so my introduction to the game, I'd probably swung club and even played a few holes, but, uh, I started caddying when I was 13. So I always try to give the, the kind of the background that I was born into a big family. I'm the sixth of eight kids. And I was given every opportunity as a kid. Um, I grew up, um, not wanting for much. Um, but my father grew up really poor. And so golf was very foreign to him. And for all of us in our family, when you turn 13, you had to get a job. And so I washed dishes and I caddied. And so I grew up North of Chicago. And so I caddied at places like Shore Acres, Old Elm and Onwencia, some really great, really great golf courses. Um, and that was really my introduction to the game. And I think, you know, that what really impacted me and I've told this story before, but is that pretty quickly once you go through training is that like, you just get set up with these incredibly powerful people. <laughs> so, you know, I think it was like my you know third week of caddying and I was paired with a guy named Chris Galvin, who at the time was the CEO of Motorola when Motorola was like Apple. I mean, it was a big deal. And so, and here was this guy super successful and he was chatting with me, a 13 year old who had no business, you know, chatting with them. And, that was really my introduction, quite frankly, not to the game of golf per se, but to the power that it can really wield in terms of creating connections uh, for folks. And so, you know, that's really when I started to play a lot of golf and um, and it kind of grew from there. Yeah. And and I suppose, I mean, I, I can't liken it to caddying, which isn't as big a scene over here, but playing golf as a 7, 10, 13, whatever year old, you used to playing with grown-ups. And I think there's something about that feels like a quite quick education as a kid about, I mean, I'm 37 years old and I haven't mastered how to, hold, how to behave like an adult. But for most people, <laughs> I think it allows them to, you know, sort of like, you know what I mean? I think it teaches you a social skills and teaches them. Oh, yeah. think, you know, when we played Old Barnwell, you very kindly teed us up with some of the Evans um, guys. And I feel like, you know, that program we've not given anywhere near enough airtime to on this podcast in the past, but that's really good, right? I, I, I mean, that that what you're explaining, your journey there is not dissimilar to some of what Evans is doing for a lot of the kids. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, as it relates to kind of the youth caddy culture, again, having grown up in the Midwest, it's much more prominent there. Um, and, you know, to me, what was a really big, so selfishly, a benefit to me was, yes, I got access to some really powerful people who had great experiences to share. And generally speaking, they would share them and they mm -hmm. would engage with you. And when they didn't, you've learned a little bit there too, about how not to be a, you know, how not to be, I guess is a, a polite <laughs> way of saying it. Um, and those social skills, particularly for a lot of folks, like I grew up with a bunch of older siblings, so I was always dealing with older people, but for a lot of kids out there, this is their first interaction with, you know, people that aren't teachers, you know, mm. or aren't parents. And so to your point, I think it's a really key component and one of the benefits. And, you know, as it relates to kind of the youth caddy program that we're trying to build at Old Barnwell, you know, one of the things we always say, and we mean it, it's not like a cute saying, but like, that's really a, 
it's a benefit for the caddy. It's not really a benefit for the member. And we really kind of ask our members to take, uh, like that responsibility seriously, where this is a really an opportunity for you to kind of share what you do. And, you know, maybe you're catting with somebody who has an interest in, uh, you know, golf course architecture and great. Well, you just been paired up with somebody who can talk a great deal about that or somebody who wants to go into you know medicine or oh, great. You're catting for a doctor. It's, it's those types of connections that, um, that really pay dividends long-term. And I, you know, I can tell you many stories about fellow caddies that got their first job with people they caddied for, um, mm -hmm. and that have led them on that, that career path. So to me, it was a great introduction to the game and quite frankly, a great introduction to the power, um, that the game can have. And Evans is great, isn't it? Like that's a full ticket to college, right? If you, so, in, and I, yeah. you'll know what the percentages are. Is it like, is it like winning the lottery getting through on that? Or is it actually quite achievable if you get the rounds and you do, and you kind of excel? So it is really achievable. And so I think that one of the things that we've had to train our kids about is how achievable it is and what it means. So basically right now across the U S there's almost 1200 kids that are getting a free ride and, and free housing for college through Evan scholars. That's a lot of kids. It's a lot and the of thing is that they, as well. That's a huge, it is. And, and so, and Evans, it's amazing because Evans has partnerships with like 20 plus universities. I mean, great state schools, you know, and elite educational institutions. And they're trying to grow that. They want to be at, you know, 1500 kids by 2030. And, you know, the, the criteria is you, you need to have had a hundred loops. You need, you know, good grades. You need to demonstrate character and some sort of financial need. And so, you know, there are many kids, like for, for example, I was never eligible to be an Evans scholar. Not, not only did I not have the character or the hundred loops probably, I maybe came close, but, but I, I didn't, I didn't have that financial need. And so more importantly, I think for these kids, not only does it provide that opportunity for education, but then they have these Evans houses, these scholars houses at these universities where, um, they will be surrounded, especially in their freshman year, by other kids who may be first-generation college students who have gone through this process like they have. So they've got this kind of community already built into their experience, mm -hmm. which for people going to university for the first year, I don't care where you're from or how well off you are, it's a culture shock and it can be really difficult. And so to me, it's so much more than just the scholarship component of it. There's, there's a lot of that. Um, and then of course, you know, the opportunities that it creates for them long-term, there's this huge alumni network across the U S um, there are some very prominent <laughs> Evan scholars, uh, alumni, you know, in the fortune 500. And so really? it's just a wonderful organization. And by the way, they, I think that's like 98% college graduation rate, which is, <laughs> it's, it's insane. So yeah, they, yeah. they clearly pick them well. Well, I think so much of the groundwork is done up front, right? So like, you know, yeah, you had to do a yeah. hundred loops. You really had to go through a process to get there. So you want it so yep. much. So when you're there, you're not going to back out of it. So just bringing it back to you a bit then. Nick. Sure. So, you, so you sort of grew up, you know, hustling a little bit as a caddy and enjoying doing that and, and everything. Presumably went off to college and then sort of threw yourself quite heavily at work. Is that right? So you've, you've, you've had a successful business career. Has golf always featured alongside that or... Did you so I think a lot neglect of people, golf at any stage? I think, yeah, I definitely neglected golf. So, you know, basically I convinced my father to start playing when I started to play, which meant that at least a few times a year, I knew I was going to be playing golf in the summer, even when I was in college, when I wasn't playing, when I was at school. Um, and quite frankly, you know, I just played the local 
municipal course growing up. My dad joined the club when I was probably a senior in high school. And so it was like a treat to come back from college and play there once or twice a summer. Um, but like a lot of people, I drifted away from the game for whatever reason. It was too expensive. I was too busy. I was trying to, you know, become a professional <laughs> like you. I'm, I'm almost 40 and I'm still trying to figure out what that means. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, uh, after college, I spent a little bit of time actually writing about music for a few magazines and that was a great experience. It's like the best thing you never want to do again is kind of how I describe it. Um, and I lasted for about 18 months before I had to come home with my tail between my legs and live in my parents' basement, um, and get a real job. Um, but you know, after grad school, I was a consultant for a while. And then a friend, you know, again, a friend who I played golf with growing up, uh, who lived in Los Angeles said, Hey, I've got a friend who's moving to Chicago and he's starting a company. You should talk to him. So again, like because of somebody I knew in part because of the golf, I was introduced to somebody um, and I joined the startup uh, that was like my first experience in terms of entrepreneurship. And though we, I say we failed, we, we didn't succeed. Let's say that after nine months, we sold the company for not much, but in that nine months, I learned a ton and, you know, I kind of gained some confidence that like, Hey, I'm. I can actually do some of these things that I thought that you had to be 45 years old to do, you know, it's like, sometimes it's just doing the work. And so that experience was great. And because I was doing some sales, it allowed me to play golf for work, which is something that I had not been doing previously. And so fast forward, I helped, um, there was a gentleman that I'd gotten to know in the startup world in Chicago who was starting a company. And I had some experience on the, the topic, which was HR technology. And so I joined that team as one of a, you know, co-founding executive and I managed the sales team for a long time. And again, I got to use golf as a way to connect with clients or potential clients. And <laughs> like we ended up getting purchased by a private equity firm that we were kind of introduced to through a couple of degrees of separation through somebody we met on the golf course. And so it's just, it, it really is. And so, um, you know, that was a really formative experience in my life. You know, we had grown very quickly. I always joke around by the time that we sold, I was not in the leadership ranks because we needed to bring in some adult supervision. Um, but it was a really great experience, but at the same time, and this is the part of the story that I hate telling, but it's an important one. So basically after we sold, I was the last man standing from our you know former team. I helped with the transition for a little bit. And then I actually went to treatment. So I had a drug and a drinking problem that I'd hidden pretty well for I don't know, uh, 18 years at that point. And I had an 11 month old son at the time who's now six. Um, and thank God a wife who supported me and said, you know, go take care of yourself and we'll, we'll deal with everything when you get back. And so as you can imagine, you know, that was a pretty long time to reflect and to kind of figure out what had gone right and what had gone wrong and what, you know, you know, what I should be focusing on moving forward. And so, you I mean, it sounds cliche, but I kind of came out of that and really thought to myself, okay, I'm in this really unique and fortunate position. And my wife helped guide me in this process, by the way, you know, instead of trying to go start another business or try to make more money or do whatever, like when I focus on something I love and something that might have a positive impact. And so that is how the conversation between Sarah, my wife and I, began around something as crazy as starting a, a golf club that's mission focused. And then it took months for us to kind of zero in on what the idea was and, and how we felt we could make an impact. Um, but each step along the way, you know, she'd say, well, what's the next step? And I'd say, well, maybe hiring 
Brian and Blake. <laughs> so, okay, we'll hire them to go look at land. And then what's the next step? Well, we found the land. We got to buy it. Okay. What's the next step? And so there's never like one moment where it was like, we decided to do it. It was just a long process where, again, she supported me the whole way. Um, but it was a long process where we kind of took our time or, um, made sure that we were kind of moving in the right direction and just kind of kept going. And here we are, you know, however many years later. That's incredible. It's a hell of a story. It's like a roller coaster as well. Like I, you know, that's, and that's a really short space of time as well, five years. So without, you know, without trying to sort of dwell too much on that, you know, how do you go from, you know, going into treatment and then having, coming out the other end with, I'm going to set up a golf development. I'm going to start <laughs> well, a new private club. And this well, is what the vision's going to be because like that cycle is, that that feels like it should be a really long cycle. Like, is it, was it just a case of actually, right, I think we just want to give, give something back and I want to do something away from the corporate arena. Was that, was it as simple as that or? I think nothing is ever that simple. I do think that, I mean, again, not to dwell on it too much. So I was, I, I went away for 90 days. And so for 45 days that was focused on addiction and for another 45 days, it was on kind of mental health. And for anybody who's familiar with addiction or has family or friends that have gone through it, that mental health piece is sometimes neglected. And for me, though, I hated, hated being away from home and also not being able to mend fences for the people that I'd hurt over the last 18 years of being in active addiction. The one thing it does provide you is that opportunity to think about, like to get to really focus on not the stuff that doesn't matter, but the stuff that does. And so coming back from that 90 days of being away, I had a lot of stuff to do at home to repair and to earn trust and to do all the things that I'd failed to do, you know, leading up to it. And in that process though, again, you kind of get conditioned and you start to really think about things in a way for me anyway, that, 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 like what really matters. And again, I, I, I was born into a family that by the time I was born, they, they made a lot of money. And my father, again, he worked his tail off and my mom being the mother of eight kids, she probably worked even more. And they set this great example for us of, you know, money is, it's great. And you can earn, you know, try and earn a lot of money. But, you know, my mother in particular has always said like, it doesn't make you a good person. It doesn't mean you're successful. Like what you do, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis is what really makes you who you are and what makes you successful. And, and so, you know, it took a while for me. And again, by the way, I was also unemployed. So I'd stopped working at that uh, company. And so I had a lot of free time on my hands. And so I was volunteering in organizations. My wife is actually an attorney for a nonprofit firm here in Charleston, South Carolina, where I okay. live. And so that's a pretty good example of somebody who's really talented and devoting her time to something that is, you know, greater than yeah, of you know, her own kind of you know, needs. So I, this is a long way of answering, but it wasn't like a very simple transition. It was a bit longer and it had, and it's all mixed up with this personal kind of roller coaster, like you said, that I was going through. Um, and I was just grateful to be in a position where we could financially think about something as absurd as that. Um, and to, you know, to be in a position, you know, from a family perspective where I had somebody who had every reason to say like, no, this is so crazy. What are you talking about? Cause like, honestly, I had gotten off the wait list at a club here in Charleston 
around this time. And it was, I think it was 75 grand and it had gone up from 25 grand to 75 grand. And it's a lot of money Jesus. Yeah. and then it's not super family friendly. And Sarah was like, absolutely not. And I was like, Oh yeah, I kind of agree with you. But then when I was like, well, can we spend X amount on this <laughs> project moving forward? She's like, well, yeah, I think I'm okay with that. So long as you know, you stay true to the mission. And she's been, you know, it's funny. We don't talk about it as much anymore. Cause I think it's really built in. You, you referenced it earlier, which I'm, I'm so glad you experienced it with our team, but like, particularly early on when we would be making pretty big decisions in terms of who we were hiring or what we were doing with this component of the club, she would be the one who'd say, you know, how does this impact the mission? Like, how does this align with the things that you say you're doing to make an impact? And so, you know, to have that kind of support is really unique. Uh, and, it, you know, she probably wouldn't agree with this, but like it would never have happened without her, the period, you know? Um, so it's a lot well, of things that came it. together. I can believe it. There's a really, I'm hoping within part of this, you'll sort of explain some of the ethos that sits behind old Barnwell, but there's a, there's definitely a very strong ethos to the club, which we touched on at the start, and a sort of a clear mission to what you're doing beyond being a private golf um, club. But what came first? Was it the, was it I want to build a really sick golf course and club, or was it actually I want to do this and golf's a good means of of creating that because of everything you'd experienced through your career and your childhood? So I think that the idea the idea of building a, a course. And, and and more specifically a private club took some time to get to and it kind of they worked in tandem i think in terms of what the mission was going to be but my experience was you know as we discussed already that golf is something that like yes it is a sport but it is also a trojan horse for something much greater it's you know a trojan horse for life skills and communicating with adults as a kid, or, you know, the, the type of kind of integrity that we talk about in a pretty casual or cliche way, but is totally true. It's like, you can tell more about somebody playing golf with them than you can, you know, spending weeks with them in, inside of an office. And so, you know, with that in mind, we had talked about, you know, do we want to build a public course or like a par three course, or, you know, those kind of ideas went back and forth, but I think what really stuck with me again, and this has a lot to do with caddying, and having had the opportunity to play at some of these fantastic private clubs across the US was that those private clubs have two things at their disposal to make a huge impact. They have usually a fantastic golf course. And secondly, they've got really successful and powerful members who can share their experience and make an impact on people um, around them. And, and so to me, the thinking was, you know, if our mission, our mission is to bring people together through golf, which is so general, but my thinking is there's kind of two components to that. There's one, which is internally creating a community of members that are pretty diverse. Um, and when I say diverse, I'm not just talking about women or folks of color. I'm talking about beginners or families, uh, or folks for whom a, a golf club might, you know, be viewed as really extravagant and, and too expensive. If we can kind of rope in a lot of those different groups, then we can kind of create a community of those members where that impact is kind of shared across those members. And then the second component of that is how do we take that welcoming nature and that community nature, and then put it to work outside of that membership within the community to support, you know, those groups uh, or individuals that are generally underrepresented in the game. So, you know, our partnerships are really around, you know, women's golf, around youth golf, around veterans, uh, and, and uh, okay. maintenance. Um, and then, you know, the, the caddy program is something we referenced already, but so again, 
the, the, the broad mission is to bring people together through golf, but more specifically, we're trying to use this private club to make an impact that, that feeds off of those members and really takes advantage of the resources that a private club has to make an impact. Yeah. It's kind of counterintuitive, I should say, an inclusive private club. But I think we're we're working towards that. And I think that by making sure that every single person that walks on property feels like they belong, that's a pretty good step in that direction. And and it's something that we're, you know, we're gonna have to work on until the end of the club. I mean, until the end of time. It's just it's something that is really important and central to the ethos that we're trying to create. Yeah, but like you say, by bringing together you know, in a private club environment, you do generate quite a lot of sort of using the power feels wrong, but there's a lot of sort of whether it's brain power, experience, wealth, you know, e- economic output within that that then has the ability to have a positive influence. And I suppose as the benevolent dictator in this scenario, you've got the ability <laughs> to help sort of you know drive that stuff through in terms of how you set the whole thing up. And, you know, it was really interesting when we we're there. You know, Kitty said. I think I asked Kitty, how many members do you have? And she just said, we don't, we have, we have this number of families. You know, it's like, this is this is what the, the sort of language we talk in. It's not really about the number of members. It's actually the families that, that we have there, which, you know, it feels like, yeah, it's a bit of a departure, you know. I, I, what Just one sort of thought, and this is partly because we did a podcast with uh, Zach Blair, which will either be coming out or uh, leading up to this one. Um but I, I sort of asked the question, I get the sense over in the US that it's actually really difficult to build, you know, accessible municipal golf and build really good architecture within that because just the costs and accessing the right architects and the right people that can do that. You know, I think it's very easy for us to sit over in the UK where we have a lot of ancient golf courses and we're blessed with some really good land to sit there and say, well, you know, yeah, everything is tied up in really private clubs in the US. And why is that? But I suspect when you go down the process of building a new development as you've been through, it quickly unravels that it's not as straightforward as, yeah, we just want to shut the gates and keep people away. This is actually quite difficult to build something really good, you know, even with, you know, private cash, let alone trying to do it on a municipal footing. Yes, I would certainly agree with that. And I think Zach, what Zach is doing at the tree farm is really impressive and noteworthy because they're focused on, creating this great golf experience for their members. But Zach has also really made a big point about public access. And I think that if, if we both had our druthers, we'd be creating a great community of golf within with, with members, but also creating something around kind of access and the ability for anybody to, to play uh, under certain circumstances. And I think, you know, what you said about municipal golf, I, <laughs> There are plenty of examples in the U.S. of where it has worked. Um, you know, there's a place called Wild Horse. Well, so Aiken Golf Club is a great example. And the thing is, it's a, so thank you because I was I was going to start with like places like Wild Horse that are in the middle of nowhere and that can survive because the community supports it, and then places like Aiken where it's just like you know it's almost this ancient and and I know there's been work done um, by Mr. McNair over the last you know few decades, but it feels like it's always been there sort of thing. And so it kind of has this cult following. And so it can support, you know, an organization or a, uh, a course like that at $40 or whatever it is to walk, which is pretty impressive. But if you were t- to start right now and to buy the land and to build a course and to install irrigation and to hire, you know, architects who, you know, know what they're doing. And then the contracting crews that know what they're doing, it's, it is impossible. It's, 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 
I say that so definitively, and, and so maybe I'm wrong, but it would take a lot of capital support from the municipality, from the community. And just like Sand Hills was built on a shoestring budget because their community was loaning them their equipment and people like, you know, in the town were actually helping to shape or, you know, flatten some scenarios. Well. It's like a unique case. It's so remote and it needed the economic output from that club. Exactly. So there's these kind of these specific drivers that could help facilitate a more reasonable price for the creation of something like this. But I also would say that, you know, irrigation alone for an 18 hole golf course right now is going to set you back. I mean, even on the, like the least expensive side, like at least $1.5 million. Mm. That's a lot of money. And on the high side, you're looking at somewhere towards 3 million. So just that, that one thing, which I grew up playing in, you know, this dirt, <laughs> this dog track in Wisconsin, I'd go up there for like a few weeks each summer. It was called uh, Max Walton Braze. And there's no irrigation except they do, they hand irrigate the greens and it was on limestone. I mean, it was like hard as a rock, <laughs> but I didn't care. Cause it was golf, you know, it's just like, it's, 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 it, it is what it is. So I think, and again, this is a conversation that could take hours cause it's really fascinating to me, but if the expectations from the general public around what makes a good golf course wasn't manicured fairways and greens, then I think we could have a different conversation about ways to build more affordable and really impactful, um, architecture in a public sphere. Um, but again, I think it's the Augustification and I, I pick on my dad a lot because my dad didn't grow up playing golf. Um, he plays at a Tom Fazio course, um, in the winter that probably has a flower budget that isn't you know greater than most people's or most clubs. Um, entire maintenance budget and, he, and and it's a beautiful course and he loves it and and it's great for him <laughs> you know but it's setting i think the wrong example for what affordable and, and really good golf can be and by the way we're just as guilty of that in some ways i mean we're not overseeding but we have a very hefty maintenance budget because we're trying to create an exceptional golf experience around the playing conditions and a lot more you know capital expenditures can create an incremental, um, you know, improvement in those conditions and, and kind of, you know, reflect the designer's intent as it were. And you need irrigation. Like, like you say, there's, there's yeah. some of the, just like the, some of the, just the real basic hygiene stuff of this is like, you've got to irrigate it. You're in a world. Yeah. But world you don't need a 30,000 square foot. Hot. Yes, exactly. But I do think that you don't need a 30,000 square foot clubhouse. You don't need any, again, we're guilty of some of this in terms of what we are, focusing on in terms of the type of experience we're creating, because in part, we do believe that if the golf is really fantastic, and if the experience is really as welcoming and fantastic as we can make it, that's only going to benefit the mission. Right. And so we're, we're kind of, that's our investment. If we were looking at it from a municipality's perspective, we'd be thinking about it in terms of a different method of investment. And so it's, it is a challenge. And we thought briefly about doing something public, but from a risk standpoint, you know, it's a lot easier when you can raise money through, even if they're modest, there's initiation fees. than if you're just banking on the public coming to a place like Aiken, you know, I mean, like the band dunes example is, is pretty terrifying when you look at it yeah, it's from back in the job, day. Is it? It's not your job to shoulder the risk at the end of the day, you know, it's not, well, your, no, but it it's been. not your job it to take been. on all of that. Like you, you, you know, you can do the work and 
take it. You know, I think that's the that's the tricky thing is it's like who should take the risk if we're gonna if if in the US gonna double down on provocative, great. I mean, Andy Johnson makes a really good point. I think he was on our podcast and said this. You know, in the US, we give people, if you want to get someone into coffee, you'd take them to a nice coffee yes. shop and make them a nice latte. You, you wouldn't take them to the gas station and give them a, a, a $1 cup of rubbish. And yet that's what we kind of do with golf is people's gateways often into the rubbish and then they sort of graduate into the better stuff. And and it shouldn't be like that. But it doesn't mean the developer should be the person to shoulder the risk of doing that to prove whether it is or isn't doable. You know, it's just that's not the right incentive there. So there's probably a whole other conversation we can go down in that topic. But yes. um, it, yes. is in, it is an interesting one. Just, just talk to me a little bit about the the golf course and how much of that were you instrumental? Cause you said quite early on, you got Brian and Blake and said like, go find some good land was, was Aiken always an area that you were sort of zoning your sights in, or was it sort of, you know, drawing the compass around a hundred miles, just find somewhere that we think can create good golf. So for me, I had hired Brian and Blake, you know, originally before I'd even talked to either of them, my thinking was I would like to hire Brian. And then Blake was one of those people that I'd, you know, read a little bit about it, heard him on a few podcasts and thought, Oh, maybe he'd be good for the second course. And then I, as I kind of understood their working relationship, it just so happened that I'd reached out to Blake first through, um, golf club Atlas. He had posted something on golf club Atlas. And so I just reached out to him and asked him, cause he had said he had found, or that he didn't, didn't find it. He said that there was some really good land, sandy soil in some part of Georgia. And so I reached out to him about it. And then that led to actually a formal introduction to Brian Schneider. And I basically hired them and said, listen, I'm going to look anywhere within a six hour drive of where I live in Charleston. And if I can find something I think is good, I'll let you guys know. And you can come and tell me what you think. And so I bought one of those map apps. Um, so I could see, you know, topography, I could see, um, you know, wetlands and all that stuff, the overlays. And to some extent, they have these soil maps, which are sometimes accurate, sometimes reliable, not. I guess, yeah. But but if nothing else, it gives you a sense because if you see a theme of sand, a strip of sand, there's a big across a big region. Like, yes. Right. And so, anyway, so I you know, I probably looked at sixty or sixty-five spots in person. No, maybe, maybe sixty in person. And I do remember the first time that I thought I'd found one that was good. Brian and Blake, um, came down, they spent the morning there. I met them, uh, you know, a couple hours after they had arrived and they were like, no, this is, <laughs> this is not good. And That's here's why it's not good. Yeah, it was, it, but again, I think it was funny because like, I wanted to create something great, but I had said like never. And I still feel this way. It wasn't like I wanted to create a top 100 course or anyway, I didn't want that to be the goal. You know, I wanted to create something that was special and unique. That's why you would hire Brian and Blake because they can, they, they have that track record, but also they'd be bringing something fresh. And so to me, that was kind of the important part. And what they taught me was that if we wanted to do something unique and exceptional, you had to find exceptional land. And so as it turns out, you know, some of the places that I looked at were as far, I mean, they were basically down by a hoopy, um, you know, in that area, there's, you know, Burke County and, and Scriven County in Georgia definitely have some of that soil. Um, and then it, I looked as far North as like Rock Hill or close to Charlotte. Um, there's some pockets up there. But, you know, as, as Zach found before me, um, there's a lot of good land around Aiken. And so it just so happened that some of these places that I'd be looking at were in Barnwell County, Aiken County, um, and, you know, just all within probably a, an hour drive of Aiken. And so when I found this piece of property and brought, Brian actually was the one who came down first. 
Um, it was a weird shape. It was not going to be, it would have been very tough to route 18 holes. It was 440 acres originally, but it came together at like this pinch point. So routing would have been difficult. And he said, I don't care, get it, get it, just get it. And we'll figure it out. And sure enough, you know, I joke around about this a lot, but they started routing golf holes on land that we didn't own and we had to go get it. And it turned out, you know, now we've got 575 acres or so. And, um, it turns out that was, it was doable. Thank God. But, um, they were right. And so in essence, like that was the end of my involvement around the golf course because, uh, you know, my one rule was I just want 18 holes. I don't care what par is. Um, I really want you guys to have a, you know, uh, a blank canvas to do what you think is best. Um, and boy, that was a good decision because <laughs> <laughs> you don't want me telling you where to put a bunker or how to shape a green. Um, I, you know, I can hardly use a hammer, let alone, you know, any sort of dozer, but, um, or, or Sam pro. So they, it's a hard thing know, to do, isn't it? As a developer, that's really, really, no, hard. it really isn't. No, I don't think it is. Maybe for I you think, it is. I would find it impossible not to insert myself where my points weren't wanted. Well, so I will say this. So that's because you're much uh, smarter and intelligent around golf course <laughs> architecture, or golf course architecture. No, but I, I mean it. Like, I, you know, I've got all the books. I've read all the books and I continue to love learning and visiting other places. And sure, I have like taste, you know, the things that I like more um, than others. And some things that I like that I'm sure Brian and Blake would be like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that you even said that out loud. But to some extent, you know, early on in this process, I, I had to acknowledge that like, and this isn't like some, you know, false modesty. Like I had no idea what I was doing. And so very early on in this process, I, I had to admit to myself that that was true and then make sure that whoever we hired had the, the resources they need to be successful, but also the free reign. And so for us, you know, it started with Brian and Blake and we hired Morgan Purvis, who was an Aiken native and is a golf nut and somebody who really helped us build the mission and the community of our members. Um, and then John Lavelle, who's now our GM, but we hired originally as our director of agronomy. Mm-hmm. Like that to me was like, that was, that was the, the first big domino to fall where he has incredible experience at some unbelievable places from Augusta national with Congaree and diamond Creek but he's also a fantastic leader. And when you find those individuals, you really like, for me anyway, I felt comfortable being more hands-off and now I'm sure Kitty and Lucy on our team would say, well, you know, you're still a little too hands-on when it comes to like events or when we're trying to work with our partners to create, you know, like we're working with, um, university of South Carolina. We've got a women's college event coming up, a match play event in March. And I think they're probably like, get out of here. We can handle this. Like you, you, you go do your thing. But with Brian and Blake, um, and with John and, and, and Chase Watson and his team. Yeah. I, you don't want me butting my head in there. I mean, I asked a lot of questions, but I, I gave very little feedback. I love this. You're sort of wandering around your own golf course now, trying to find a job for yourself and struggling by the sounds of it. There's so much truth to that. You have no idea. (laughs) I I literally, I feel like I I talk to every potential member and try to meet every potential member. Now we are in a position where I can kind of be patient enough to do that. Um, and I manage our relationships with all of our mission partners. So a local historically black college for East university or Evan scholars, who's been an unbelievable partner. But like, other than that, I just show up and I shake hands and I kiss babies. Like that is, (laughs) that is my role. And, um, I suppose that's the way it should be because um, there's not a whole lot of value that I can provide at this point um, other than just kind of be a, a, 
you know, watchdog around the culture and, and the things that you reference. But I think our team is already doing that as well. A few parting questions, Nick, about the golf course. To somebody who's never seen a picture of Old Barnwell, how would you describe the golf course to them? I would describe it as an open expanse of golf holes. Uh, there's a central valley that runs through the property and a good two thirds of the golf course runs along on either side of that valley and a couple holes run through that valley. And on that part of the property, there are no trees. And so you can stand where the clubhouse will be and you can see 14 holes um, across that landscape. And to me, again, I'm incredibly biased, but it's a breathtaking view. Um, and so, and then there's kind of a different environment when you get to the ninth hole, you start winding through some, you know, mature pine trees and you kind of get this more Heathland and Parkland feel, um, on some of the holes. And so to me, there's a great sense of variety around the course, but also a great cohesion in terms of the themes that you'll encounter. And you, you hit on it earlier. I think what Brian and Blake have done so, so effectively is create this course that has wide fairways and anybody, my father included, again, I'll pick on him again. He can hit almost every fairway there, but what the good player will realize, and I am not one of those, but what a good player will realize after a few times of playing is that, yeah, they can hit the fairway, but there is this small section where you really want to be. And so it's gives you all the, the playability options in the world, but it's really very small targets. As you said, if you really want to get around the course, um, in as few you know shots as possible. Um, but I think the land is Seven's just a brilliant example. I think it's seven that plays into the corner. Seven plays into the corner. That's a Blake. up on the front left. I mean, exactly. you've just got to be on the extreme left of that fairway. Otherwise... But if you're on the left side there, to some extent, you might have a blind shot, depending on where the pin is. Because there's a bunker. So, like, to me, that's a great example of, yes, that is the only place that you can... depend. If the pin is on top left, that's the only place you can be if you want to make... Yeah. that green and be anywhere near that golf hole. But there are other days when I don't know, like if you can play it right and stay short, you might have the opportunity to do what Craig Disher, one of our members does, which is lay up short and then pitch and putt and make your par yeah. and walk away. Yeah, it's amazing. It, again, I, I, I am continuously or continually amazed at just how many like layers to the onion there are with this course. And that's been really rewarding. And I know that's like what Brian and Blake have in mind, you know, since day one, but for me, you know, don't, I don't have that experience or the, you know, the travel to really understand the great courses around the world, but it just, it keeps revealing itself. And I think for our members, that's a really special thing because they're hopefully going to be playing there for years and years to come and, and finding something new out each day. Is there a hole that you sort of go to bed at night thinking about or one that's sort of like one that you sit there and think, God, oh, we of all of them, we really nailed it on this golf hole? Well, we we didn't nail any of them. They yeah, nailed everything. Blake and Brian um, really nailed it on this golf hole. Well, and also I give a lot of credit to John Lobel and Chase Watson, who's our director of programming now. Their, their team, they've done an incredible job. Um, and McCarrick Contractors did wonderful. But, um, or, you know, there are a few like sentimental moments in this process. Um, one of the earliest spots that they found that they felt really good about 
was what is now kind of the landing area for your drive on the par five 16th hole. And so you hit your drive. It's a blind drive. You hit it up this hill. And as you're walking up that hill, it's like the whole course is revealed to you. Like step by step, you see more and more and more. And then the second shot goes down into this huge valley with a built up green that was entirely manufactured by them. Um, there was a lot of earth movement that took place on that one. But that spot, I remember walking that spot with them before there was any golf, any semblance of a routing and knowing that that was going to be a pretty special spot. And so that is one, I just love that, that particular, uh, you know, part of the property. Um, and as it relates to the whole, I, I mean, I do think that it depends on the day, um, for me, but the, the one that I keep coming back to, like when I'm, when we have events or when I'm kind of there and I'm just sitting around shaking hands and kissing babies, one place that I like to just set up shop is right next to the, um, the berms next to the 10th green and the 11th tee, because to see how people play the 10th hole is it's really <laughs> like, I feel like if you play video, I never played video games, but if you play video games, it's gotta be so miserable to watch somebody else play video games while you're, you're just sitting there. But like, I get a ton of joy just watching other people play 10 because there's so many different ways to play it. And it's got this extremely, the, the strategy of it all is, you know, there's this kind of dinosaur bunker that, that triangulates out into the fairway. So if you want to play it towards the hole, you can do so, but you got to play it short off the tee so that you have a good angle. But if you play it long, right, you're going to have this really a longer shot into a green that is completely natural and just pitches from right, right to left. Yeah. And, and there are bunkers lining up all the way to that green. And so to see how people play that and, and, and the best is when you see somebody play it just right so that it's, you know, the ball lands 15 yards right of the green and just kind of trundles down slower, you know, and then kind of just skips onto the green and, and rolls towards it. That's a lot of fun. And then to see the tee shot on 11 from that spot, which is uh, a pretty epic part three. Um, it's you know, beautiful. You hear... 11, it's like a round tree sketch. I mean, it's gorgeous. It, it, it really does look like a round tree sketch of sort of one of the you know, it really does look like something from the 1910s. That's just, it's a watercolor, isn't it really? But it's actually a bloody um, green site within when you get to it. Is. <laughs> so that was a, um, an Eric Iverson uh, creation. And so when he came down with Brian Slonick from the Renaissance golf team, um, I got to spend some time with Brian, but when I was there, I was there a few days while they were there. Um, I didn't get to meet Eric because he was just zoned in on that entire green site. Like he worked on that green, the bunkers, everything. Um, and you know, for folks that haven't had a chance to play it yet, it is probably a 10,000 square foot green. And there is a top shelf on the right side and a big Valley that goes down to the bottom shelf on the left. And it's a, you know, from the member tees, it's a 220 yard par three. And so, you know, you hear a lot of groans, but you also hear a lot of like, you know, people saying, Oh, come on, come on, come on. Yes. You know, it's like, so sitting there by the tee, you get to hear a lot of different emotions. Um, and it's just like one of those things where when the ball is on the ground, that's when golf is at its best. And that is a hole where you, you can't, you're not going to be able to hold that green. If you hit it there, uh, you know, in the air, you really have to hit it in the right spot and watch it roll and see where it goes, um, which is a treat. And, and I suppose just as a, closing this down a little bit the thinking is more development going on so when you when you come in down the down the track to get to the get to the cabins you guys are already working have you already broken ground on the on the second course that's already that's already underway mm -hmm. is it 
Now, yes, I so... think it was John that was telling me this is going to be a, like a shorty. This is going to be like a little um, 5,800 or something, like a like a nice short course. Is that, is that so too what they're building way? actually right now is actually a kid's course. So in my, in my mind, initially I wanted two 18 hole golf courses. Um, and that second 18, I didn't care what par was again. I, I thought it'd be kind of, I didn't think that, that we had enough room. Um, and once we bought this piece of property to build like a full 7,500, you know, yard par 72, 18 holes. And so I just figured we'll, we'll get to that. And it'll be kind of its own unique thing. And Brian and Blake had brought up this idea of a holiday course is what they refer to it as something similar to Rye, where it's not a par 72, but you've got some fantastic golf holes over some pretty, there's a lot of diverse landforms there, but before we're doing that very early in this process, Brian and Blake, Blake or uh, Brian in particular said, we should build a kid's course. And so I was like, you mean a par three course? He's like, no, a kid's course. <laughs> so he told me about North Barrett and he told me about some yeah. of the places that, you know, he's been to and seen where, you know, you can't play there unless you're accompanied by a kid. And so cool. You know, and and given like the mission and and this kind of, you know, focus on for us, a lot of our families, as, as you mentioned, I'm I'm so excited that Kitty said that. I've never heard her say that. I've never, we don't, that's not something like we practice. But like we do kind of look at our members as groups of families as opposed to individuals. So the idea that our average age is about 42. Um, and so we've got a lot of young families. And and for a lot of our members, almost 15% of our members, this is the first club they've ever belonged to. And so to create an environment where on weekends, where families can have their own space, you know, so the idea is that during the week we'll have clinics there and people can play there. But on the weekends, you really can't play there until three o'clock unless you're playing with a kid. And so right now the policy, I mean, the, the, the routing is 12 green sites, mostly par threes, but a couple short par fours. I mean, when I say short, like 240 yards, um, because again, as we think about these kids and, and how they're going to learn the game, you know, you want to give them a bunch of different shots to hit. Um, and I, again, I I've given zero direction to Brian and Blake, but what's really great is that we had a, a contest, a little Lido design contest where, uh, children of members could submit a, a whole design and the winner was a, a kid named Alex lens from Chicago. Wow. Uh, and he had, well, he had like a penguin bunker. He had all sorts of things, like some really cool, uh, elements. But the thing that Brian and Blake really loved is that he had ramps in front of the tees. And so that if you hit a grounder, well, you still get air and you feel good about yourself. Right. And so <laughs> I honestly, I don't know what they're going to do, but I think that Brian and Blake have some kind of, and I think people might take this the wrong way, but I think there's going to be some elements of miniature golf. Like, I really think that they're thinking, how can we really engage these young kids that this is a really fun place for them to be in a place they want to spend time on. And in, in a way that isn't going to impact, you know, you or me playing there. It's not like we're going to have to hit through a clown's mouth, but like there are ways that they think they can really engage those young players. And on top of it, you know, and this kind of goes to the ethos question that you were asking earlier, um, tomorrow I'm, I'm on property meeting with a group out of Atlanta that makes custom tree houses. <laughs> so we're investing a fair amount of money in a tree house. That's basically going to be a tree house, certainly for our families, but also kind of like the halfway house for the kids course. And that to me is, it speaks more to kind of Brian and Blake's approach to design, which is yes, it's the golf, it's the golf and it's, where you hit the ball, but it's also what are the features and what does the look and feel and the kind of 
sense of place that, that they're creating. They're always thinking about those things. And so that's what's under development. Now, the next 18 holes, uh, is probably, we'll probably start clearing land for the first nine of those 18, you know, uh, in a year or a year and a half. Um, assuming things continue to go well, which we've been really grateful that they have, but and that'll be another like what, two or three years. You think you'll have everything built? I mean, knowing how things, how long things take. And if you want to do it, you got to do it right. So, um, I would say realistically four or five years, um, cause this kid's course, they'll start grassing it in May. So it'll be open in September. Our clubhouse and our lodge should be open by the end of this year. You'll, I'm, I'm sorry that we'll, you, you won't, hopefully you won't see that double wide, um, again, though it served its purpose really effectively for us. It's really been a, I'm, I'm not joking. It's been great. I think cabin culture but, thing. I think you should actually just not build a clubhouse. I think it's so good. So it's funny you say that. So places like, have you been to Kingsley club in Michigan? No. It, so that is in essence, that a double wide. sticks, does it really? And it is, it's great. And it's, and it really does. It fits the culture. And, you know, I think from a mission perspective, again, I think people think this is corny when I say stuff like this, but one of the important things that we wanted to do is create a clubhouse that is intimate, but also kind of funnels people together. And so we want to create space for, you know, families to have their own time. But we also know that there's going to be a bunch of guys trips that come and, and how do we make sure that they are interacting, but not stepping on each other's toes. Right. And so a double wide doesn't really allow for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the great club houses are the small ones, right? They're cozy ones. You know, it's like we taught, we started this podcast talking about Rye. Uh, a good friend of mine once said, the great thing about Rye's clubhouse is it has everything you need and nothing you don't. And it's, and it, it kind of works like in that sense, it's uh I mean, look, Nick, this has been unbelievable. And we're still going to talk to Brian and Blake about the golf course, but uh, you know, the, the passion and everything you've got for the, for the place and the project is unbelievable. And we really had a great time there. Like we had a, such a great time. Um, the caddies, like the, 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 the guys you set us up with the team, the course was, I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool, really cool golf course. I've never played anything quite like it. Um, so yeah, it's a, a huge thank you. No, uh, I'm really glad you got to experience it and I uh, hope you'll come back and thanks for letting me yap away about some of the things that are, are less golf related. Watch this.